The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I've got Erwin McManus back on the podcast, and we talk about why the future belongs to communicators, the seven frequencies of communication, the dot of fast learning. I found that part really interesting, and I think he's right, and what it means for communicators. So if you ever put a microphone on, if you are interested in persuading people, you are going to love this episode. Plus, we dip into the backstory about Erwin that I had no idea about. It's really, really good. Today's podcast is brought to you by Belay. Sometimes leaders micromanage, and if you wanna get back to doing what only you can do, grow your organization, they have a free church leadership toolkit. Just text CAREY, that's C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's CAREY to 55123, and get back to doing what you do best. And if you're wrestling with fear or uncertainties in talking about money or handling it, Generis has some free resources for you. Download the free resource and request a free call by going to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S backslash carry. Well, Erwin McManus has committed his life to the study of genius and the pursuit of God. He is an iconoclast, an entrepreneur, storyteller, fashion designer, filmmaker, and many more things. And he is also the founder of Mosaic, a church movement based in the heart of Hollywood. Now, when he says that, He's not kidding. I interviewed Erwin, by the way, there's a great YouTube video of this and thanks to his team for setting that up in Hollywood at Mosaic. When he says he's in the heart of Hollywood, I'm not kidding. A block or two away, what have you got? Jimmy Kimmel Live, uh, the theater, the Kodak Theater where they do the Academy Awards. I mean, it's literally a stone's throw from Mosaic and he is reaching people that other people would never reach. And we talk about some of that DNA. If you're interested in doing that, I find it fascinating. I think you're gonna love this conversation. So Erwin, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and with your team. Uh, leaders, I'm really glad you get to hear this today. And sometimes as leaders, you think there's no way someone could do the job as well as you can. Well, it can be easy to feel like you have to have your hands on everything for your organization to succeed. But of course, that isn't true. No one accomplishes anything great alone. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, true, but I can't afford to bring on help. If you're a leader trying to do it all, this might be the best investment you can make in your organization. And that is Belay. They've got a free resource called the Church Leadership Toolkit. With this toolkit, you'll learn the necessary steps every leader needs to take to accomplish more and juggle less. Belay's staffing solutions help busy leaders like you delegate the details, and they will intentionally pair you with a U.S.-based virtual assistant or accounting specialist to level up your church through the power of delegation. So anyway, for the free resource, Church Leadership Toolkit, Text CAREY, that's C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. And in no time, you'll be back to doing what only you can do, growing your organization. Just send the word CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123, and you're off. And recently, I caught up with my friend Jim Shepard from Generis, and I asked him how pastors can overcome their fear of talking about generosity. Here's what Jim had to say. I think the main thing of helping pastors become more comfortable about their uh, talking about giving, CAREY, is to move over into the transformational lane. The reason they've gotten so much pushback is it's transformational. In other words, it does feel like that I'm raising money for my church rather than looking to grow me as a giver. My favorite verse, and hardly anyone goes there, my favorite verse is what Paul said in Philippians 4.17. He said, and I sought the gift not for my own account, but for the fruit that abounds for your account. 
And what it feels like in far too many of our churches is that we really are seeking the gift for our account and not for the fruit that abounds to their account. And I think that's where the pushback occurs. And if we would deal more with that, the blessing, both in this life and beyond, the sanctification, the change in your life, the transformation that could happen in giving, pastors wouldn't see near as much pushback on that. So capital campaigns and talking about money can be scary for a lot of reasons, but they don't have to be. Generis has been helping church leaders for over 33 years, and they've gathered a number of free resources to help you. They're even offering a free coaching call with a generosity consultant. So to download the resources or request your free call, visit generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry. Well, now my conversation with Erwin McManus. Well, so glad to be with Erwin McManus today, right here in Hollywood. How are you, Erwin? It's so good to have you here. Ah, thanks for hosting this too. I really appreciate it. Um, you have been communicating for a long, long time. We're at one of your locations in Hollywood, like literally a block away is the Dolby Theater where they do the Academy Awards. Why Hollywood? Why did you decide you would locate here? Uh, well, I was 24 years old when I decided to come to LA. And it was before I was married. And I remember telling my wife, Kim, that if we got married, L.A. was non-negotiable. Huh. And I uh, really worked more as a as an urbanologist and anthropologist. And I liked looking at global trends. And I, um, I kind of came to the determination that L.A. was the epicenter of the future. That the, the future doesn't emerge equally around the world. There are places in the world that are a thousand years uh, in the past or a hundred years in the past, or hmm. even if you travel across the country, if you go to you know, Indiana, you're going to have a different cultural experience than if you go to San Francisco. And it, the world just isn't at the same time in history. And I determined when I was 24 that LA was really the epicenter of the future. And I wanted to be wherever the future has been created. So that's why I came here. And then we've moved all over the city. We've been in, you know, the nightclub downtown, the, um, the Glam Slam that Prince owned. And, and then we uh, went to the Mayan, which uh, has like a thousand pagan gods carved all over it. Iconic <laughs> place from um, um, the movie Collateral. And, um, and then we also have a location in South Pass, the Rialto Theater. That's the iconic place for the, um, um, oh. Rocky Horror. Oh yeah, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so we've been in a lot of really iconic places, but this spot um, happened about 12 years ago. And it was, uh, it had been sold, a company in New York bought a family, LaFrac mm -hmm. family, and it was empty and they were going to tear it down and put condominiums here. But I knew they were going, they were going to go through years and years of litigation. So I flew to New York, walked into Jamie LaFrac's office and um, convinced him to lease me the property while they're trying to sell it on a month to month. And that, uh, and I had told him, I said, if you'll let me, um, take over the space. We'll make it iconic. It'll be worth more. And so we moved in and we've been here 12 years on what has been a month-to-month -month lease. <laughs> no way. And you've totally redone the place. We did. Right? We renovated the whole place. You can't touch the outside because the city of Hollywood uh, turned it into a historical property. It's not historical, but they turned it into one to stop them from tearing it down. Right. And so we were able to transform the inside and there was a trend to think across the world where churches were always uh, dark. Everything was black. Everything was mm -hmm. gray. And my son, uh, Aaron, said, hey, could you let me um, redesign the inside? And I told him, I said, I just want one thing because it was during the pandemic. I want people to come back and know they're going forward, not backwards. 
I don't want to return to something. I wanted to step into something new. And so he transformed the entire auditorium from all black to this incredibly all white kind of feel. And it's really dynamic and um, it's it just illuminating. It's, it creates a sense of, of optimism and hope. It's been really interesting. And I yeah. think it's a, it's, a, it's a beginning of a trend I've seen in other places now moving toward all white interiors as well. Mm. Yeah, it is literally like, I don't know what you say, surgical white. <laughs> like it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it is the way you've done. And we done felt it. like Hollywood was the epicenter uh-huh. of uh, creativity, of storytelling, um, of imagination. And there's sort of an interesting, I think, tension because if you come to Hollywood, you realize there's not much here. A lot of tourists. Yeah, a lot of tourists here. I mean, we're, you know, feet away from the starting of the, the, you know, Stars Walk of Fame. Uh, And so Hollywood is more of a metaphor. It's really more of an idea. Hollywood can, you know, happen really in anywhere in the world where they're making a movie. And it's considered Hollywood. But we wanted to be in the epicenter of human creativity, imagination, and storytelling to say that... Jesus is right here at the center. The story of mm. Jesus is the most important story in the world. So I chose this spot strategically and intentionally. And it's been amazing. We've been on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and La Brea for a dozen years. Yeah, that's great. And then you've got the Rialto Theater as well, yeah. right? Which is another iconic place. I want to talk about communication. So, I mean, I go back to remembering when you took over Church on the Brady. Is that what it was called? Oh, when we started going, yeah, the church yeah, on Brady in East LA. Yeah, it was Mosaic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was, and so it eventually became Mosaic and what it is today. So you've been communicating a long time. How, mm-hmm. how long ago was that? Yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to go backwards a little bit. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, because um, it's an interesting thing when you describe how churches change. When I came to LA, we were in East LA and we were at a church um, that was um, known as the Church on Brady. It was, its legal name was actually the, um, the First Southern Baptist Church of East Los Angeles. That's a big name. That's a big name. So East LA, <laughs> just put that in context for yeah. people who don't know LA. What kind of neighborhood, what kind of demographic is it that? It was on a little side street in between huh. um, what would be kind of notoriously known, known as the um, epicenter of like La Eme, of like the Mexican mafia, of the world of... Uh, you know, cholos and gangbangers. And it's uh, the closest, I think, school would be Garfield High School, which is where the movie, uh, I think, was Stand and Deliver was about. And, and you know, and so it's a very Latino, uh, very impoverished kind of area. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, but it's interesting when you say Mosaic became the church, or church where it became Mosaic. It, it, that isn't the way things actually happen oh, in well, real life. Oh, tell me what happened. Yeah, it, I, I ended up, Moving to Los Angeles, my wife and I went to the church on Brady. They asked me to become the pastor for like a year. And my wife kept saying, you should never be a pastor. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the former pastor kept asking me to become the pastor. And finally, we, we decided as a couple, because I didn't come here to be a pastor. And I came here to make concept films and to have an influence in the creative space of the world. And, and we said, okay, if they vote 100%, then I'll become the pastor. And they voted 100%, but a lot of people didn't vote. <laughs> I didn't realize that Baptists, you know, and uh, can actually just not vote and later vote through their actions. <laughs> and, uh, so it went, it went really, really badly. And it was five, and, uh, five to six years of just brutal uh, attempts to transition a, a church. And uh, it was so stressful. I had a twitch in my right eye for about five years. It, and I, I, we started having people come to faith and uh, the church had been plateaued for 15 years, had been declining for at least 10 years. It, it had um, 
about $1,000 in the bank, $100,000 worth of debt, a deficit, and a million dollars worth of debt. Wow. And, and I didn't know any of that when I stepped into it. So we're not talking about communication, but, um, but we are talking about the, the power of transformation and community and, and, and transitions. And I, I learned so much during that, that season. That's actually why I wrote An Unstoppable Force, because I realized that you're not really transitioning people. You're dealing with um, a shift of culture. Mm. And if you don't understand the power of ethos, you'll never make these changes effectively. And, and so out of that, what happened was I had to decide how do I reach LA with people who actually want a place that's safe and secure and uh, that's just for them. And so the irony was I acted like uh, I, I pastured this group, but then I started a new church at the same time. <laughs> and so we, we went and found sofas and love seats from all over the city. We would hide them in an alley down the street in East LA. And every Sunday we'd pull them back out and I would, we would take all the stacked chairs out of the church and we would build an entire city inside of this space. We had walls we put up. We brought the sofas and love seats. I would stack TVs up and created the most uh, unexpected experience. And I, I had a band. And so that band and, and I were all the music and we played every week on Sunday nights and we created a uniquely different space. We started using dance and film and the internet was just created around 1999. Mm -hmm. And so while I was speaking, I had this young guy going on the internet, downloading images while I was speaking. It was an explosion of human creativity. And so two things happened. The, the church on Brady maintained on Sunday morning and then Mosaic emerged out of it. So was the evening service. And then... <sighs> um, and then I took, that grew to maybe, you know, Trisha Brady stayed at about 300 people and that grew to about 500 people. And then, uh, which isn't large, but it was for us. And then I took 50 of those people across the city to a nightclub that Prince owned. Mm. And I took the 50th, 50 edgiest, most outlier people, the people who didn't belong in that sense in the Christian culture, the ones that all the people in the morning were nervous about. And I knew that if I was going to actually reach LA, I had to take the people who were cultural outliers. And that's the people we took uh, to start really Mosaic. Mm. And that's where we actually began to, we created the name and created the culture. And then interestingly enough, another church was started called Gateway. And that's really the church that was the church on Brady. See, this is fascinating. Yeah. I did not know that. I it, didn't know that it, whole so piece. Nuanced. And we don't really talk about it because most people don't know about it. Uh-huh. And but it, it it really is one of those things you have to realize. Uh, you actually don't transition churches. You have to uh -huh. transition people. And uh, and people don't always choose to change. And what we don't want to say out loud is you don't transition a church of people, let's say with the average age of the 50s, suddenly into a church of 20s. You're replacing them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the average age of the church on Brady was probably, you know, 55. And then the average age of Mosaic became 24. And, and it became dramatically different. And, and all that also had to do with communication. Because they were used to things being communicated in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the way I communicate the scriptures, the way I talk about God, the way I talk about Jesus, the way I talk about God, didn't match the way they were accustomed to listening. Yeah. But the frequency from which I spoke, it really resonated with people who were artists and creatives and inventors and entrepreneurs and innovators. And it, for them, it was the first time in their life 
that ever had a conversation about faith that made sense to them. Mm. And, you know, if you go forward 20 years, we had an Easter gathering and I think there might've been 11 to 13,000 people. And, and we did a survey and asked how many of you here are atheists? But you would say, I'm an atheist, but if God were out there, I'd be open. We had over a thousand adults say, I'm an atheist, but if God were out there, I'd be open. That doesn't include all the atheists who are not open, who are there. <laughs> it doesn't include all the agnostics that were there. It doesn't include all the Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus that were there. It only includes the thousand adult atheists who said, I'm an atheist, but I'm open. And I, I would just challenge you to find any community of faith in the world that has that kind of a relationship with unbelievers. And because what people would tell me, and I, and I understand the, the dilemma, when people would come from other churches, you know, when they move from other parts of the world, from Australia, or they come from England, or move from Missouri, or um, they'd come to Mosaic and go, I, I, don't, it does, I, I don't know what I'm feeling, but it doesn't feel quite right. And I realized Mosaic isn't a place where a person who's a Christian, who comes from a Christian church can come in and go, oh yeah, this, this is home because it, 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 you're outnumbered. There's a psychological reality that happens when you're around people who believe like you. Mm. And so when you're in a room with 500 people who all believe in Jesus, you feel affirmed, you feel comfortable, you feel safe, you feel right. And then all of a sudden when you enter the room and you're with an equal number of people who don't believe, it has this odd kind of dynamic to it. So there's a lot of people who are still listening, are listening, who are probably still trying to do a version of what you're doing uh, 25 years ago. Yeah. Where, um, and so I want to drill down on that. So the morning, Mosaic became your like, all right, I get to do what I want here. I get to design the room. I get to communicate the way mm -hmm. I want to communicate, et cetera, et cetera. But when you think about um, what you were doing on Sunday morning, did you make attempts to conform your communication style to the expectations of that crowd? Or were you trying to do what you were doing on Sunday night on Sunday morning and it's like one of these things is just not like the other? Like, can you, because I think a lot of people feel that tension. They're like, well, this is how I want to communicate, but this is what the church can handle or this is what my organization can handle. How did you handle that tension? Yeah. I think the difference is it's not how I want to communicate. It's the only way I could communicate. Ah. And so on Sunday morning, I would try to communicate in a way that made sense to them. And I wasn't capable of doing it. Yeah. So I don't want to act like, wow, I'm good at all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I was terrible at communicating to people who were linear and concrete. And I, I remember at one point, you know, my wife and I went down to Saddleback and we heard Rick and, and she said, why can't you preach like this? <laughs> 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 and, uh, that's that's and, beautiful to hear. And so I came back and I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the fill in the blanks. And finally, after a few months, my leadership team came and said, could you stop? <laughs> you're just, you're just terrible at this. Nobody knows what the blank is. No, no one knows if you gave them the answer. <laughs> you have 35 blanks. Rick has five. <laughs> and, and I realized that my approach to communication is so much connected to styles like digression and it's, it's a more organic and intuitive approach. And, um, and I was trying to fit into a more linear, concrete space. I think this is a part of the shift, yeah. Yeah. is that when we talk about communication, you have to realize that the majority of American Christianity has filled its churches with people who are linear and concrete. Yeah. And so they affirm and they need communicators who are linear and concrete. 
But the people who actually shape the future, the people who change culture, the people who create everything that even linear and concrete people want for the future are people who are more abstract, more intuitive, more organic, more universal in their thinking. And, and so one of the dilemmas is when you then think, okay, how do we reach these people for Jesus? Most of the time, if a person isn't linear and concrete, we think they're a heretic. Huh? huh? And it's not because of beliefs. Because I, I can tell you, so many times people would yeah. say to me, well, you know, in fact, I got a DM a couple of days ago. You know, well, my friends tell me that you're a universalist. And, you know, and they go, <laughs> and I said, well, it's, it's so fascinating because, I mean, I could go down the list. I actually believe Adam and Eve are real people. Like, I, I don't know how more literal you can be, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think the Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are the most fundamental uh, chapters in the whole Bible. If, and, and you know, I, I believe that, that Moses, you know, well, that God parted the waters through Moses. I, uh -huh. you know, I believe that God sent fire down when Elijah prayed. I'm going, I don't know how you could be more... Um, uninteresting in terms of belief. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a universalist. You know, yeah. I believe that Mary um, gave birth to Jesus. It was a virgin birth. And so when people tell me, well, yeah, but you know, you're, you're, you're not, you know, orthodox. I go, well, okay, pick a space where I'm not orthodox. The difference is this. I actually ruthlessly believe in the scriptures. And I do not allow my preconceived notions of truth to be protected when I go to the Bible. I think I'm actually more ruthless with the Bible and I challenge everything I believe because of it. I think the difference is that I don't see reality the way Christians see reality. It's not that I don't see the scriptures in the way that I should see them. It's that I don't even see humanity in the way we should see them or reality. It's the difference between being Newton and being Einstein. You know, I mean, the moment Einstein sees that energy and matter are the same. Everybody thinks he's out of his mind. And, and I, I think the reality is that most of Christianity still thinks that matter and energy are two different things. Mm. And because, you know, that's the world from which Calvin came. It's the world from which Luther came. It's the world where our beliefs came from. And, you know, even science tells us the world is much more dynamic than we could ever think. Well, there's a certain sense, and I agree with what you said about everybody who fits into church pretty much fits the logical, linear framework. And mm -hmm. I'd be one of those people. Mm -hmm. That's how, you know, I was trained in law. That's how my brain works. That's how you're taught. However, um, you know, you could argue that that is all a hangover from the Enlightenment era, right? Where everything was rationalized, everything was intellectualized, God was explained away, or his existence was explained like that is a lot of enlightenment thinking. And mm -hmm. you do really see that breaking down in postmodernism. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be fair, rational thinking was so important to replace superstitious thinking. Oh, okay. Good point. You, you know, and so it's, it's what you're battling against. And, and so I think if I had been born during that era, I would have been a completely rational thinker going, <laughs> no superstition is something we need to put in the past. And the problem is that rationalism isn't the answer to every dilemma that we face. Right. And now it has become the problem, not the solution. Because you can't rationalize God. You cannot mm. put God into a system. And any framework that understands God completely is completely wrong. Mm. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think that somewhere along the way, we have to reclaim our love for mystery and uncertainty and wonder and 
um, and artistry and beauty and, and the full essence of who God is. And I know eventually we're going to talk about communication, but I actually really love talking about God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I really love, I love this conversation because it anchors it in a reality I think a lot of people can talk to. So let's go back to those first five years mm -hmm. and you've got a communication style. Talk mm -hmm. about what that was and then perhaps how that has changed or shifted over the years or whether that shifted at all. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, earlier today about, well, what is the journey of communication? And, and one of the interesting things to me, and I'm really grateful for this, is I grew up irreligious. Mm. I'm not grateful for that part, but I mm. am grateful for that. My first encounter with Christianity was so positive, I couldn't have hoped for anything better. Wow. And it was in a church in Orlando, Florida, and the pastor teacher was a guy named Jim Henry. And I'd never heard a speaker in my life. So it was the first time I'd ever heard a, even a public speaker, wow. much less a, a, a pastor. I, di I didn't know that was a genre. Because you were born in the U.S. Yeah, I, I'm from El Salvador, you know, and, and, and then lived in New York, Miami, and just in a religious family. So I didn't know that there were people out there giving speeches, <laughs> much less sermons, right? Right. And, and, I, and I was thinking about him, how I'm really grateful because the power of his communication was that he was authentic. He had this Mark Twain kind of wit and wisdom. He had incredible timing with bad jokes. <laughs> and, and then he seemed to know how to seep into my soul and um, make me uncomfortable with um, my inner struggles that nobody knew about. And, and so I'm really grateful because my first experience with someone giving a message was incredibly transformational. It, was, it, it invaded me. And it let me know this could happen in communication. And then, and I know, and I know a lot of people always say negative things about mega churches, and it was a mega church. But one of the positives was that he brought other speakers, and they were always really gifted. Huh. So I heard a lot of different styles of communicators. And this is back with cassette tapes. Oh yeah, right. I remember you know? those so days? They I'm were a, fun. I'm, I'm at Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina, and I'm just ordering cassette tapes and downloading them <laughs> into my into my machine and listening to speakers all the time. And I'm listening for content. I'm trying to learn about the Bible. I'm trying to learn about God. I'm trying to learn about Jesus. But what I didn't realize is I was downloading different aspects of communication, different frequencies of communication, different skills. And, and, and they were all different. Some of them were more intense. Some of them were more poetic. Some of them were more intellectual and, and, and academic. And some of them were just motivational. And, and some of them were, you know, people who challenged you at a high level and, and, and then some that just cast incredible vision. And I, and I look back and I realize I was the beneficiary of these incredible communicators. And so when I think about the, you know, the change in communication of the years, I think there's something universal about mm. communication that if you know how to connect to the human spirit, I have a feeling if we had been sitting there 3000 years ago, it would have connected to us or a thousand years ago. And I mean, when you read Marcus Aurelius, when you, mm. you realize, oh, this guy could be sitting in a forum at Harvard and they would, it would just absolutely shake our whole view of reality. And, and so I think there's an aspect of communication that's universal and that's when it's most human and it's most authentic. And I think that authenticity and its humanity are what make communication transcendent. Do you think that's ever a threat 
to people who live out of the linear didactic intellectual framework, because I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Communication is connection. Communication is in, you know, spirit to spirit, soul to soul. Do you think some people get threatened by that style? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's no, there's no question uh, in the world. And I think there's, there's several reasons for that. I mean, think about the etymology. The word communication mm-hmm. comes from the same word as community. True. And so you cannot have healthy community without healthy communication. <laughs> and, and the word communication and community came, come from the same etymology as the word communion. Mm. And you cannot commune without community and communication. And so it should actually become to us so enlightening when John says in the beginning was the word. It's like God is the communication that brings communion. And there's this integration of who um, God is with what he says. There's almost no separation in that. And I think when people are incredibly linear and are transferring facts and data information, it's, 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 it, it's considered deep. Like if you're giving mm-hmm. deep information, it's actually surface level. <laughs> the deep conversations are the ones that mess with your soul. Right. They're the ones that mess with your inner world and change the way you see reality. And, and I, I find that to be the most exciting thing. Those, those moments when you know something transcendent has happened, that, that you've connected to people and they've connected to you in a way that is unexplainable. You know, there was a season in my life where I was traveling, speaking to um, arenas of 20, 30, 40,000 people constantly. And the overwhelming feedback would be someone meeting me in the parking lot going, it was like, it was as if you were only talking to me. Mm. And I began to realize really quickly that when you speak to 40,000 people, it remains on the surface unless you're only speaking to one. And so in my mind, I've, I've only always spoken to an audience of one person. Mm. There may be 50 people in a room or 5,000 or 50,000. But if I try to translate that as I'm going to speak to 50,000 people, I'm going to miss everyone. But if I make a human connection with one person, suddenly 50,000 people think they're that one person. <laughs> I think that's the wonder of it. No, that's, that's fantastic. I do want to talk as well because I want to dive into communication theory, et cetera. But, you know, here you are, one of the cultural hubs of the world, L.A., You've been here for better part of a quarter century. How has communication style in the culture shifted since the late 90s? Like, what are people, what were people more open to then? Because I think, you know, it was you who told me, and I quote you endlessly on this, but to understand, uh, what is it? Oh, I'm going to get the quote wrong. Uh, But to understand the future of the church, you just need to understand the present accurately. I think that's so true, right? But, um, you know, there's a lot of people in churches using communication styles that are 30, 40, 50 years perhaps past. But in 25 years in LA, how have you seen communication shift in terms of how people hear? Yeah, my, my daughter just turned 31. and That's how we mark our years. We came here when Mariah was 30 days old. Oh, so, so it's 31 years. We've been here 31 years. Wow. And I would say there's a lot of things that have shifted in terms of um, communication styles not in terms of how people speak, but how people listen, mm. and which is really more important. And it, because to become a great communicator, you have to become a great listener. And I think a lot of people just want to become a great communicator without becoming a great listener. And they, they don't realize mm. why they hit their ceiling so quickly. This culture 
speaks in much shorter frameworks. And, and you might say they have a shorter attention span. And I'm like, well, maybe they can know faster. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And because, you know, I was just in my office and I'm working on this graphic novel and, and Elisa's, I'm looking at the storyboard and she's maybe slowly, I said, Lisa, you got to go faster. You know, I need to go faster. And I'll, I'll, I'll be looking at things hmm. with my wife and she'll go, can you really like see that fast? Yeah. And, and I can, like I can, I can process information um, almost at an unbelievably fast pace. And this, and a lot of it is because I let the culture keep teaching me how to learn. And this culture learns really, really fast. It picks up things really fast. And so, yes, it loses its attention span because it doesn't take it two hours to learn what it used to take two hours to learn. It can learn it in two minutes sometimes. And it just distills information to a a very like functional practicality of what I need, what do I need, what do I need, what do I want to know? And and, and I gave you a good example. I have a a person who used to be on our team, he has a PhD and he would love reading books. And, and I said, okay, since you spent so much time reading books, what I'd like for you to do is when you finish a book, distill it to one page and tell everyone on the team, what's the critical insight from the book? And he looked at it and he goes, I'm not capable of doing that. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, I love reading books, but I don't know what the takeaway is. And, mm-hmm. and I realized, oh, there's a lot of people who are academic and they have all this information. But if you needed to have them distill it to the one thing you need to do today to succeed, they don't know what it is. Mm. And frankly, it's also true with entrepreneurs. And I, I mean, I work with an endless number of, of high performance entrepreneurs who started companies from scratch. And what's fascinating me is that they didn't have any more information no. than anyone sure. else. They had the same amount of information. They just had an instinct to know of all the information, what's the one piece of information I need to act on right now. And so you have a generation that's been uh, trained to process information incredibly fast. And, and that's why TikTok, you know, I mean, TikTok is entertainment here, but it's not entertainment in China. In China, it's education. Mm. So the same format that we're using for entertainment, China is using for education. Wow. And in fact, they do not allow Chinese children to access our TikTok, even mm. though they're creators of TikTok because they know they're shaping the mental structures of children. They're going to have the most intellectually sharp and refined thinkers in the world. Well, it's sort of like Gladwell's outliers, right? Mm-hmm. The whole education system there. That's really interesting about fast learning. And I, I hadn't actually thought about it and wouldn't mind spending a minute or two more on that because a lot of dots started to connect for me when you said that, because our kids are around the same age. I got a 31-year-old, 27-year-old. Um, you know, they asked us a lot of questions until YouTube came along. And then all of a sudden they didn't need their dad anymore the way that I needed my dad to explain the world. And of course, that's just grown on steroids since then. But if you think about that, like somebody walking into a church in the 90s might not know a lot about Christianity. Maybe read the Bible, maybe read a book or two, maybe went to church once or twice. People have Googled whatever they're interested in to death when they show up at Mosaic today. (laughs) They've been bombarded with all Mm -hmm. this, you know, just more information than was imaginable 50 years ago. They've had it. And they're sort of content soaked. Mm -hmm. Has that changed your approach at all? I don't know if it's changed my approach, but it actually has made my approach um, more effective. 
Ah, ah, how so? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, 20 years ago, I, I wrote a book called Soul Cravings. Yeah. And uh, it, it won an award. But well, what's funny about it is that when it won an award for Best Evangelism Book, along with Bill Hybels, um, like The Walk Across the Room or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh -huh. But the problem was that they, this is what they said. If you want to know how to do evangelism today, read Bill Hybels' book. If you want to know how to do evangelism 20 years from now, read Earl McManus's book. <laughs> so no one bought my book. <laughs> so no one bought your book. <laughs> I said, thank you. You just gave me an award and a tombstone all, all at the same time. And again, what was the book called? We'll it's called it. Soul Cravings. Soul Cravings. Yeah. And, but no, the point of that is that if you are actually pressing into the future, hmm. it's, it's as if culture catches up with you. And, you know, the reason we're here in LA and the, and, and the reason we're still standing is because we're not communicating from the past. We're communicating from the future. But it's not like you have to um, be a, a neurosurgeon or, an, or, you know, understand physics. What you do need to understand is humans. What they know is that cliches don't work. Mm. What they know is that jargon is jargon. And what you'll find is that the churches where pastors use a lot of jargon and a lot of cliches and a lot of Christian language, they get packed with Christians. Yeah. Even more so today, post-COVID. Yeah. Like there's this consolidation happening yeah. if you're a little bit political, mostly on the right, but somewhat yeah. on the left too, depending on where you are. Right. If you say the right things, if you use the right terms, you can pack an auditorium yeah. like overnight, but you're not really reaching people. You're consolidating yeah. the reach. The difference is that when I speak on Sunday, I'm always in an internal conversation with the person who is least likely to believe anything I say. Mm, I love that. And so my conversations are always from the outsider in, not from the insider out. And I earn the right to give them my perspective. And, and it begins by communicating in a way where they know I know them. And, you know, I think I, um, I posted the other day that someone, some people speak at people and some people speak to people and some people speak for people and then some people speak through people. And the, the kind of preaching that needs to happen now to engage a new world is you have to speak through people. You, you have to have a conversation where they don't know how you know this about them. Okay. So what would an example be? Like if you're going to, you can pull one from a recent message, one coming up, what, what does that involve speaking through people? Well, I, I would even do it like one-on-one. -on -one. I, I uh, was at this business event and this uh, former NFL player who became a multimillionaire um, in the business world. Um, he was, he's an atheist and the, hmm. they brought him to me and say, hey, you know, he's an atheist. You guys should talk. And, and as we began talking, I just took a minute and he was very hardcore. He grew up in another religion and was very adamant that religion was evil and manipulative. And, and, and I just took a moment and said, hey, I'm just going to tell you what I see inside of you. And I just took a minute and just started telling him everything I saw. And then when I was finished, um, he said, how could you possibly know all that? And then I said, you don't believe in God, so you're, you're going to have to figure this out. How could I know these things about you having not known you? I've spent my life studying human intrinsics and understanding human motivation, human behavior, and also listening to how people communicate. Carrie, you've had conversations with your wife where, you know, 
maybe she says one thing and means another thing, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah, a few of them, a few of them, maybe. you know, like, you yeah. know, one time I wanted to go play basketball and I'd been gone for a while and I asked him if I could go and she said, sure, go right ahead. Yeah. You know, I knew she didn't mean that. You know, I knew what she's saying is if you leave, it's going to be very, very bad for you today. <laughs> and we all, when we know people, we can hear the frequencies of communication underneath what they've actually said. I can put this in a most unexplainable category. I was speaking at an event with about 5,000 people in Germany and I had a German translator. And in the middle of my talk, I stopped and I looked at him and I said, you did not say what I just said. And he goes, what? And this is in front of 5,000 people. <laughs> He's translating this. I did not say what he just and said. <laughs> he, goes, he said, what? And I said, you did not say what I said. You said the opposite of what I said, didn't you? Wow. He goes, how could you know? I only speak German. You don't speak German. And I said, just answer the question. You didn't believe what I said, so you changed it to say what you thought I should say. He goes, yes, I did, but how could you possibly know? <laughs> I, I knew because wow. his frequency did not match my frequency. <laughs> and I, I've done this across the world. I mean, in maybe 70 different countries. And I, I've tested this across the world, knowing that we know things, not just from language, but from the frequency of that language. Hmm. And, and you can think about it. It's like, you know, if you take it down to a more basic level, like your dog, do you have a dog? I don't okay, know. We have a dog. And you, know, you could say mean things to your dog in kind ways, and they think you're being kind to them. Yeah. Because they don't speak the language, they only hear the frequency. And what we don't realize is that humans are smarter than dogs. <laughs> they understand the language and they hear the frequency. So how do you listen for that? Like you're addressing the people in a room like this on a Sunday morning. There's hundreds of stories Mm -hmm. per service. How do you determine what to say? He goes, I know that I will speak to the most honest place in them if I get to the most honest place in me. And so it's not even about me having to figure out where everyone in the room is going what they're going through. It's me looking at this issue of um, whatever, it's loneliness and, and, um, and extricating in, in, in the most honest and courageous way I can what that feels like for me and what I've gone through and how I've found my way through that without any cliches. And, you know, I, I just hate when people go, you know, you know, uh, God wants it to happen. It's going to happen. And like all these statements we make about God, you know, <laughs> and, oh, you know, you know, it was meant to be. And, and it, it, people without God have their own cliches too, you, you know, and I just make sure there isn't a single cliche that I can find an honest way to deal with something. So I just spoke, uh, I think, um, last week on John chapter five on, uh, Jesus, um, asking this guy who's a paralytic trying to get to the water for 38 years because he was told that there's that if when the water stirs an angel stirs it and if he gets there he'll be healed and 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 i started like i just started looking at that going what does humanity look like today in that like oh it's this doggy dog world can you imagine paralytics trying to push other paralytics aside to be the first one in the water it's this view of god that God is limited in his grace, limited in his generosity, limited in his goodness. So only the person who gets there first gets touched by God. And, I, and, I, and I, so I just started asking, I said, are you living your life in such a way where you actually believe that for you to win, everyone else has to lose? And even when you pray, do you pray prayers where 
you want God to be on your side against everyone else. Like when we pray, God, I want the Eagles to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what you're saying is, God, could you please make sure the Chiefs lose? And I don't care how many people need the Chiefs to win and how many people have, are praying or how many people's lives have been broken. This is the moment their dreams are going to come true. I don't care, God, how this might change the city of Kansas City. I just care that you care what I need. And so I just backtrack things and go, what is the, both the darkest and the lightest space that this moment reveals about me. And then when Jesus says, do you want to be well? And his answer is, I have no one to take me to the water. And I go, he doesn't answer the question Jesus asked because he thinks he knows how to get well. And that's our problem is that we keep thinking that we need to tell God how we're going to get well. And our prayers are all about telling God, this is what I need, rather than hearing the question, do you want to get well? And the answer should have just should have been yes. Yeah. And so I just look at every passage in the Bible and I try to bring it down to its most human essence. And people with Jesus, people without Jesus, people who believe in God, people who are atheists, they all resonate with it because it's a human story in that moment. And that makes God more real. So Erwin, you've got this masterclass on communication that you've been offering for a little while. Can you tell me uh, what's behind it? And a little bit, we'd love to break it down if you're open to it. Sure. And it's totally different. It's not like a $300 course you can buy online. No, or it's, it's, it's totally a $5,000 course. $5,000 course. Yeah, it's wow. very expensive. Um, this was rooted in so much history. I've been married 39 years to my wife, Kim. She has right. a master's in theology. Thanks. And, um, um, and probably most of her marriage, she's asked me to write a book or to teach the world how to communicate. And, you know, there's, there, there are things everyone does well. Mm -hmm. And if you spend your life refining it, hopefully you can become good. And I, I think that if I've spent my life learning how to master something, I've spent my life learning how to master communication. And I've seen communication as an art form. And I don't see it just as a, a utilitarian uh, tool to communicate a truth. I see preaching as an art form mm. and communication as an art form. And when I, I give a talk, I, I see it as a moment where I'm painting in the same way Picasso would paint or composing mm. the same way Mozart would compose or, or playing a game of chess the way Fisher would play. I see communication at the same level of beauty and opportunity for genius and transformation. And, and so I, I want to just give a backdrop of how I see communication. And, and for 40 years, you know, Kim's like, teach communication, teach communication. Then my son now is 34 and uh, he's been, dad, you just need to teach communication. And, and I just had people all over the world. And, and really the breakthrough moment for me is when, um, before the pandemic, when the, kind of the world shut down and everyone went online and I realized it all sounds the same. It's like white noise. And I began realizing that Christian speakers we're eventually going to eliminate themselves because they all sound the same. <laughs> so you only need one of them if, they, if a thousand of them sound the same. Right. And they're not speaking from their most authentic voice. They were, they were using a, a technique and a methodology that had been trained and told this is what preaching is like. And I remember sitting down with one of the most popular um, young speakers in America and because he would always ask me about learning how to preach. And I said, you are so gifted that you never, you will never have to become authentic. Mm. 
and because you're so popular and you're going to keep getting invited to more and more conferences as long as you don't become authentic. And I said, but I want to challenge you because he said, what's my ceiling? I said, your ceiling is your, is your authenticity, that you're not, you're not transparent as a person. And he texts me like a week or two later, goes, hey, I tried to be transparent at this event. It didn't go well. He goes, it's harder than, than I thought. And then I think he just sort of bounced back because it's just easier to perform. Do the formula. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that what's happened with young Christian speakers is because of the internet, because of Instagram, because of social media, because of popularity, you become famous at 24. Yep. You know, you write your book at 29, you know, and you have a following at 32 and you don't have time to actually grow into your authentic voice. You have to become the voice that they demand. Hmm. It's, it's, it's as if everyone had to be early Beatles. And because, uh, you know, the early Beatles were phenomenal, but then like pop comes almost out of that early Beatles, but Beatles kept evolving. They kept growing. I mean, they, they put out the white album. They, they, you know, they, they thought about how to uh, design, you know, um, Sergeant Peppers. It's like, yeah, they, like they, in five or six years, they're unrecognizable. Yeah. And it's because they kept evolving, but Christian preaching is pop. Mm. It's afraid to be jazz. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it's afraid to to be any genre. It's, it, it can't be Radiohead or Coldplay or U two because it, it it's afraid to lose its audience. Yeah, and and so I created this communication course. One at first I did it because I I I think God has given me an unusual voice, and I don't want to die and not transfer that to other people. And what I've spent 40 years learning about human communication, so I feel like I, if I leave anything behind, I want to leave this behind. And so it was a huge part of my own motivation was my team constantly asking me, could you, could you teach us and teach the world how you think and how you process and how mm -hmm. you've learned how to communicate? So it's a life work for me in that. And, and then what ended up happening was I ended up being asked to speak only in business environments. It, you know, through the pandemic and then out of the pandemic. I mean, I just don't get invited into the Christian space, which is, you know, um, perfectly fine because I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Right. But I've been invited so much into the business space. And then some of the most successful and well-known business speakers in the world have come to me and said, we've been following you for years. We read your books. We listen to your talks. And do you know that you're the best in our space? Hmm but you just never have chosen to be in our space. And, and I realized, oh, these really world-class communicators really respect this. So I thought, I want to do this, one, because I want people to know it's a person who follows Jesus who's learned how to communicate at this level. And I, and I, I would have never learned how to communicate at this level if I had not followed Jesus. Like, I just don't think that skill, that competency would have emerged out of me. Why? Carrie, I was so shy and introverted. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, right. I, I was so reclusive and, um, and I also didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I had, I had a lot of things to ask and I had a lot of thoughts, but I don't know if I had anything to say. It was when I met Jesus, my, my life first became, I think it's Jeremiah chapter 20 verse, I think it's eight or nine, where it says, but if I say, I will not mention him, 
or speak any longer in his name. His word is in my heart like a burning fire, fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of keeping it in. Indeed, I cannot. And that became like my life verse that I want a fire that burns in me so brightly I can't keep it in. And, and what I found was that, that, that passion began to ignite all the other skills and competencies that I needed for communication. If I, if I could say this, I think Jesus made me smarter. Like, I, I don't know if I was going to press the edges of my own personal capacity without having to deal with the deep issues of God mm-hmm. and of life and of what it means to be human. And so I, when I realized, oh, this has value in the business space too, um, I felt like I'm going to create this. One, because it'll give me an entry into the business platform where I get to speak into, uh, into people's lives that have no one who believes in Jesus speaking at their level. And they, they only respect performance. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're great, if you're excellent, if you're the best, then they invite you. There's no kindness or, you know, diplomacy. It's, it's, it's just a clear bottom line. Yeah, it's a value proposition. And yeah. I love that value proposition. <laughs> I love being measured against the best in the world. And if I fail, I fail. If I succeed, I succeed. And on the other side of it, I think the message of Jesus deserves the best communicators in the world. Hmm? And the great tragedy is when things that are false are communicated more effectively than that which is true. And we think people are rejecting it because they're rejecting the truth. And I think they're rejecting it because they're rejecting our lack of preparation, of insight, of authenticity, mm. of humanity in our messaging. That's really good to talk about. So I don't know if this is helpful or not, but you've got seven frequencies of communication. I do. Yeah. Do you want to give us either an overview, a sure. sampling, a breakdown, take it as deep or as, as cursory as you'd like? Uh, yeah, what I, what I came down to as I developed the art of communication and it's broken down to different sections like the, uh, the three human intrinsics, uh, the five elements of the communicator and then the seven frequencies of communication. And the seven frequencies of communication are what I would identify as seven signature frequencies that are most common and in, in, um, in communication. And they're not at the same level of frequency. Mm-hmm. Some of them are more common, some of them are more rare. And, and so if I were just kind of walk through maybe the more common frequency sure. to the more rare frequency, um, I think the most common frequency, at least on, on social media, is the motivator. Mm. And, and um, I, I love motivators and I like listening to them. <laughs> but, you know, motivators love to inspire you. They love to encourage you. Um, they're... They're never going to say probably anything negative in their talk, right? You right. know, and they're never going to call you out or challenge you or confront you about anything you've done wrong. But they are going to fill you with so much uh, value and sense that I can do this, whatever it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And and I, I think that most pastors fall into one of two categories. And I think motivators are one of them, where they um, their hope is to inspire people to help them believe that God is for them to, yeah. And, and I think sometimes they're seen as um, on the negative, like maybe superficial or not as deep. And it's because they're not trying to, to get into the mud 
You know, and maybe someone like a Joel Osteen would be like a motivator. Say, let's give an example of someone who'd be a classic communicator. I, I think Joel Osteen on the yeah. big scale, and I think Chad Veach. I, I love oh, Chad yeah. Veach. Yeah, Chad, Chad here in LA. Right, Chad yeah. Veach is a motivator. Motivator. He inspires yeah. you, he encourages you. You feel like he loves you, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you know, and he's for you and he likes me. He doesn't know me, but he likes me. Yeah. And, and it's not just what he says. Before Chad Veach opens his mouth, there's a frequency that lets you know I'm for you. Mm. Uh, and he inspires, he encourages, and and motivators I think are the most liked, oftentimes. Yeah. And 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 it's the most frequent I think frequency on social media because people so desperately need motivation, right, in life and need to be encouraged. And I remember one time my sister um, uh, Lee, she said, uh, "I like Joel Osteen, he's my happy pill." And uh, and what she meant by that was, I get depressed a lot. I have a hard life. I go through a lot of brutal stuff. I turn on Joel Osteen. I just feel inspired. Is that is that also your friend John Gordon? Would you put him in the? I put John Gordon in. Um, yes, I do put him in a motivator category, and that's that's lets you see that motivators can be different. Yeah, right. Because Joel would be different than Chad. He'd be different than John. Uh, John is so much a guy who wants to motivate and inspire, which is interesting because he will tell you he was the most negative, pessimistic person uh -huh. in the world, and but he reversed it by becoming positive. Yep. At what, 29 or so? Yeah. He converted to Christianity. And then I think shortly after that, his wife is like, you're so negative. I, I led John to faith. I, he yeah. talks about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, we'll link we're, to we're the best episodes. Friends yeah, we'll link to the episodes we've had with John on the show too in the show notes if people want to go back. Very but cool. he tells that story. And I see him as a motivator. Mm -hmm. And he inspires and encourages. He brings enthusiasm. Uh, he brings hope into the room. And right next to a motivator, but not the same as a challenger. Okay. And now a challenger is that person that they see everyone as someone who needs to be called out and called up. You know, a challenger, uh, it, it for them, things are never good enough. Mm. You, it's great that you did that, but you should have done that. Hey. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, let's talk. The challenger is the football coach. You're winning, you know, 28 to zero. And at halftime, he's chewing you out because you missed this block and you dropped this pass <laughs> and you missed this read. And, and they're just constantly uh. moving toward improvement. And I also think there are a lot of challengers on Instagram. And challengers mm -hmm. and social media challengers, not as many challengers as much as pastors as much, because I think because of the nature of culture, people in the church are afraid to challenge. So who would be like some challengers? I'm thinking Alex Ramosi. I don't know. Do you know Alex? Alex? No, I don't. No, anyway, it could be my buddy, Mark Clark. I don't know that you know Mark. He would be a challenger. He's at Bayside these days, but incredible communicator. Very, very cool. There, there's this uh, uh, guy on Instagram called, I think the hip hop preacher. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I follow him. And uh -huh. he is such a challenger. He's the guy that goes, you owe you. And it's almost like he's mad at you, but it's, he's mad at you because he believes in you. Right. You, you know, and um, my, both my kids and my wife all have a little challenger and a lot of challenger mm -hmm. in them. And so they're always letting me know what, how I can improve, yeah. how I can do better <laughs> and uh, how I can step up as a dad. Got it's it. always great to have that in my life. And, uh, but, uh, and then next to a challenger and each, each one of them has a shadow side too, by the way. Okay. And so is like it the, worth going into like the, the shadow side of a motivator is a performer. Ah. And that's why a lot of times young Christian preachers um, are so much performers. It's because their natural frequency is motivator, but they haven't developed that and found confidence in it. So they're performing. And, and that's where sometimes you can feel like, I feel I disconnect. I don't know if they're really inspiring me hmm. or needing to be inspired by this moment. 
What about the challenger's shadow side? The shadow side of the challenger is manipulator. Oh. Because the, when the challenger's frequency is healthy, they're getting you to do what you need to do to find the courage to take on your task, your dream, your challenge. But when they're uh, working from their shadow, they're using their challenger to get you to do what they want you to do. Mm. And, uh, and you can feel this overwhelming, oppressive weight on you that I have to do this because this person is demanding it of me. Yeah. And, and then next to the challenger would be a commander. Okay. And, and the challengers and commanders are different. A challenger calls you out, but a, a commander tells you what to do. And, and what's interesting about the commander frequency to me is that uh, it's a frequency that needs to be used more rarely, but some people use it all the time. Mm. And they, they, they don't even know how to ask a question without command. It always comes as a command. Is that more older generation, large and in charge, I command wish. style? No, you still see it. I'll tell you. My wife is number one frequency is command. Okay. My son, Aaron's, his number of frequency is command. My daughter, Mariah, her number one frequency is command. <laughs> and, uh, but they also have complementary frequency. Like Aaron has two number one frequencies, command and seer, which oh. we'll come to later. And Mariah has two high frequencies of command and maven. And so they have different textures of it. But what's really funny is um, when they'll send you a text, like Aaron was sending a text to one of the guys on team going, um, he said, like something like, send me, send me a photo. And, and he adds, please, I'm trying to not use my commander frequency. <laughs> and the other guy, other guy no. said, I'm a commander too. I love the, I love the language. I get it. Don't it's add clear. words. Okay. <laughs> you know? And I, I'll, I'll come home and my, and I, I, we came to Mosaic on Sunday and right before we um, got out of the car, I parked the car and my wife goes, turn off the car. And I looked at her, I said, you've been gone for two weeks to Africa. I was turning off the car every day. <laughs> And, uh, and, I survived, believe yeah, it or not. But, and and it's, it's funny, I'll, I'll joke about it. She'll say, take out the garbage. And I say, I know it means I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, but, and once people began to realize they have this commander frequency, my son will actually like tell me, dad, I'm going to give you a bunch of ideas and a bunch of suggestions. They're all going to come out like commands. But I want you to know they're not commands. They're just ideas and suggestions. And it has transformed our communication. Wow. And because when you can help a commander, because if you're going into a burning building, you want a commander. Yeah. You don't want someone who needs consensus or team building. Right. You just want someone who knows what to do and does it. If you're at sea in a ship, you want a commander who knows they get through a storm. Command is important when you need someone to be in charge. I think like Bill Belichick from the Patriots would be yeah. command. Do your job. That, that's the theme of the Patriots. Do your job. It's not very inspiring. Except that, when you're a commander, it's like so clear. Well, and it worked yeah. for many years. Right. Mm -hmm. Do your job. It's very, very simple. And you see command, um, you see commanders out in the space, but sometimes what happens is you start feeling like, wait a minute, this person just keeps telling me. And after a while, it gets too hard. Yeah. And I try to tell commanders, look, if you're a commander at work, make sure you don't go home and remain a commander with your wife and your kids. And if you have a little five or six-year-old daughter or 10-year-old son, and all you're using is command, you're going to just you're going to devastate, devastate their, their spirit. Mm -hmm. And so with commanders, I, I try to help them find a complementary frequency that they can use. And because everyone doesn't just have one frequency. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then outside of commander, there's a healer. There's a healing mm. frequency. I think a lot of pastors of small churches have a, have a healing frequency. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so for them, it isn't about how many people in the room. It's about how much healing and 
help and hope I can bring to people in the room. Sort of shepherding, caregiver, that kind of vibe. But not always. You know who Lewis House is? Oh, yeah, I know Lewis. I, I, Lewis and I have become really good friends. Awesome. I love Lewis. And I saw him uh, here at Mosaic just a few weeks ago. And I said, Lewis, you are completely a healer frequency. And he put his hand on my chest. He goes, thank you so much. Oh. And, and you could just feel it, like he just loved the fact that he was seen. And if you listen to his podcast, it's called The Summit of Greatness. Yeah. It really should be called The Summit of Healing. You're right. He's always in how to get better, how to improve, how to How heal. to get over your wounds, how to get past yeah. your hurts, and how to deal with, you know, um, childhood trauma. He, his whole frequency is one of healing, mm -hmm. and, but it's called The Summit of Greatness. Because for him, greatness is in bringing healing to the world. And that is so completely his frequency. And, and and then there's a um, there's a, a professor frequency which deals with data and facts. Uh, when you have a professor frequency, it's about the transmission of truth, mm. transmission of information. And I th also think a lot of pastors, um, or actually academics, who find the one job they can have is pastoring, but they would rather be at a university. <laughs> and I remember when I was in England, I think they, they did a study that out of twenty five thousand Lutheran pastors. Only 22 of them identified themselves as having had a born-again experience with Jesus. Oh. And what you find is that people go to become a pastor the same way someone goes to become a lawyer. Because if you're academic and if you love the transference of information, if you love learning and then transferring that learning, that's your frequency. Okay. So that's a professor. Yeah. Huh. And, and then there's uh, two lesser common frequencies. One would be the seer which we, what we oftentimes would call the visionary. And, and seers, one of the things you do know about a, a seer is that seers tend to erase lines of possibilities. They, they elevate your sense of who you can become, of the world that can be created, of the possibilities, and, and they're super um, integrated to the future. In fact, seers have a hard time remembering the past or being in the present, and they're still always talking about tomorrow, always talking about mm -hmm. tomorrow. And, and, you know, I have a real strong seer frequency. And a lot of times my wife's yeah. like, could you just be present? <laughs> you know, and my mind just races into the future really quickly. And I can't help it. That's just the frequency which I live and think and go. And, and then the seventh frequency is uh, something called a maven. And this is the most rare frequency. And, and I had to be perfectly uh, frank, it was the last frequency I was able to identify. Hmm. And a lot of it was because as I was working through the frequencies, I was actually trying to combine some frequencies and trying to find ways to, you know, narrow it down. But I got rid of frequencies when a frequency covered it. Yeah. You, you know, and then I said, okay, no, these stand alone. And so I thought, well, isn't a maven like a seer? But it's not. I remember maybe 10 years ago, someone asked me, like, what, what motivates you? And I remember just blurting out, I live to violate your view of reality. <laughs> and uh, that was the most honest statement I've ever made about my communication. <laughs> and, and is that Maven? Yeah. It's really? Mavens aren't really casting a vision for the future. They are deconstructing your view of reality. Hmm. And, and I remember, um, oh my gosh, probably... 15 years ago, I was in Australia and Planet Shakers asked me to speak in Melbourne. They picked me up in the car and I'm driving to the event and they said, 
hey, just so you can know, people are so excited you're here. And, and, um, and whenever you speak truth, everyone will just start cheering and clapping. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And they go, you know, whenever you speak truth, the crowd, the audience is just going to be with you. Everyone's going to just uh, explode. It's really exciting. And I said, do you mean that every time I say something that they already believe, they're going to cheer and clap? They go, yes. <laughs> I said, yeah, that isn't really my experience. That is evangelical culture. <laughs> yeah. I said, my experience is when I say my most important statements, the room goes quiet. Mm-hmm. And they're not sure if I'm right. And they're not sure if they should agree, but they f- think they agree. But And I create that tension of disbelief and belief. And there, there are fewer people who do that, but, and it's a disruptive frequency. And, I, I, and you know, and it, it hasn't always been um, something I was aware of. Mm. And the reason I didn't identify it is because I couldn't see it because it was me. Right. I could see the other frequencies because I could see them in other people. So clearly, the hardest thing to see is who you are. Mm-hmm. So you're a maven and a seer? Yeah, I, my, my, I, I think in clusters, I think I'm, yeah. I'm a maven, seer, a challenger. Right. Is, are the three that are probably most dominant. And then I, I have this um, fourth that is a healer. And, and what is, I think, odd for people is that when I'm speaking on a regular basis here, they heal, they, they, they experience a healing frequency when I'm speaking. At the same time, they're experiencing a maven frequency. Right. And so there are two frequencies happening at the same time, and that, that's what creates the dissonance. Hmm. I can give you an example of a few, like when I listened to um, Ed Milet. Yeah. I think he has commander and healer. Oh, that's interesting. And so he, yeah. both frequencies are happening at the same time, and so he creates this incredible dynamic because he's commanding you so you know he has authority. You just believe that he oh, yeah. can tell you what to do. And you want him to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's this healing frequency where he feels like he cares about you and he wants you to get better and he knows your pain and they're happening at the same time. Yeah. And and I've, I've listened to several people along the way. And, um, and and in fact, I've, I've watched, you ever watch on um, TikTok or Instagram where somebody gets a clip from someone else and their own clip and a clip from someone else and their own clip. What's really fascinating is you watch someone trying to imitate someone who actually has a frequency. And you can see the dissonance in the frequency. <laughs> and it's not that they're being dishonest. They're just using a different frequency. I watched someone um, do this with Oprah. And Oprah was speaking from such a powerful healer frequency. It was so authentic and, 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 and so a part of her essence. And then the person slipped to their clip saying something similar. It's completely a motivator. <laughs> no healer at all. Wow. And, You're right. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, one of the things that excites me at this is that once we designed the seven frequencies, we couldn't unsee them. Yeah. And once I started teaching it to our team, it became like the common language and people being seen and understood and knowing how to communicate with each other so much better. One of the things is um, I was working with someone, they thought they were a motivator and it was their number seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be painful trying to work your way into that. Yeah. And, and this guy is, uh, he probably makes 10 to 20 million a year. Wow. So he's super successful. And, but he thought he was a motivator, but he actually is not. And that's why he ends up with this um, back end problem of people who feel really discouraged. 
Hmm. Because what he thought is a motivator frequency was actually a challenger frequency. And I realized, oh, I've done that a million times where I thought I was motivating people and I was actually challenging them <laughs> or I was casting vision, but I wasn't motivating them. And my team would come to me and go, hey, we really would love for you to tell us like what we're doing great. <laughs> you know, and I realize, yeah, I hold great at a really high standard. And so it's hard for me to say you're doing this great. Right. But a motivator, they see everything as great. Everything's wonderful. Thank you. You, you didn't yeah. spill the coffee. <laughs> you know, Way to go. Way you're, to go. You're crushing it. And I had to actually learn the pattern of identifying what people are doing well. And then, and I would say, great job, great job. I thought that was a motivator frequency. That is not a motivator frequency. Great job, great job. And then my team came back and said, we don't believe you. <laughs> because when we ask you, which job did we do that was great? I'd go, uh, you know, all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Great job. Thank you. And they go, we'll believe you when you identify something specific that we're doing great. And, and it, it has, for me, created so many different dynamics, realizing uh, when something isn't your frequency, you probably think you're using it mm. when you're not. And here, I think, is the, the, the more powerful thing. If you can pay attention to other people's frequencies and realize people hear from different frequencies, and they don't always hear from the frequency from which they speak. I think one of the millennial challenges is that a lot of millennials speak from commander. But they only, but they heal, they hear from healer. Okay. Say more about that. So they speak commander. How does that show up in millennials? They feel it's their right to tell you what's wrong with you. Yeah. I'm going to make a pronouncement now about the world, about you, about the future. And yeah. let's just pick an issue. Let's say like climate change. Yep. Right. It's a good one, you know. Mm -hmm. And so if uh, a millennial will start talking to you about climate change, they won't talk to you. They might yell at you about it. Right. And they'll say, is that t-shirt sustainable? Mm -hmm. um, how much meat are you eating? And then I'll say, was that t-shirt made by um, slave uh, children in slavery? And because you paid so little for it. Uh-huh. And then they'll go, what? <laughs> you can't speak command back to command. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Because they're very sensitive. That's right. Because they speak oh. from a commander frequency, but they, they hear. hear from a healer frequency. And the temptation is I'm going to, I'm going to return hammer for hammer. I'm going to return challenger for challenger. I'm returning commander for commander, but you're going, no, I, what I have to do is, is I have to receive this commander and return with, let's say, seer, give him a bigger picture of the world and reality. So what do you do if you're commander and you're generally speaking to a lot of people who need healing? Like you think about the church. Mm-hmm. Um, disproportionate number of people, like mm -hmm. overrepresented the number of people who are in crisis, transition, challenging season of life. That's when you go back to church. It's just mm -hmm. usually been true. A lot of wounding there, sometimes by the church, sometimes by life. You tend to be a challenger. You tend to be a commander. But the people you're speaking to, their receptive mode is they need some healing. What do you do with that? I think... This is a really important question. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to go into specifics, but some of the biggest church systems in the world have collapsed over the last couple of years. Yeah. And a huge part of it is because they were commander frequencies, singularly commander frequencies. 
And you would think that people who need a healer frequency wouldn't go to churches that have a commander frequency, but oh, they man. do because they're so broken yeah. that they're willing to be told what to do. But they're not getting healed. And then when there's, and the problem with the commander frequency is that you cannot allow there to be a violation of trust. Because to have a commander frequency, you have to have authority and respect and trust. Yeah. Yeah. And the moment you lose respect and trust, that commander frequency then is seen as dictatorial. Because the shadow side of a commander is a dictator. And so you have people who flood to commander cultures who actually need healing. Wow. Because, we can do an hour on that. Because they get told what to do. And you, when you're broken, you don't want the responsibility of making your own decisions. So you abdicate that and let someone else make decisions for you. And that way, if it goes bad, you can blame someone else. Oh, man. So there's a lot there. You just really rocked my world. Like, you know, you know one of those insights where so much just flashes before your eyes at once? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So it's, it's also why sometimes when there are pastors in um, large systems who have like a moral failure or have a financial failure or have, you know, just some yeah. kind of failure. Um, and maybe it's not as pronounced as you would think, but there's no, um, there's no net, there's no grace for them. It's because commander frequency, it creates respect, but it doesn't create love. Mm. And, and so the moment that respect's gone, there is no love to catch you. And one of the things you have to really consider when you're leading people is, are you leading with love and respect? How do you do that? I, I actually think that's the most intentional aspect of leadership. I, I sign so many of my notes, love and respect, when I, when I um, write to people. And it's, um, and it's really for me based around I will not use my power for my good, but for the good of the whole, for the good of others. I actually think that's the love part. The love is, I don't lead because I have a psychological need to lead. I lead because for whatever reason, God's given me some skills, gifts, or abilities to help people live a better life. And, and then the respect part is living a life that matches what you say, you know, and um, there's an assessment I use with a lot of high-level people um, called the Berkman. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. And, uh, oh, oh, we'll have to do it together sometime. Oh, that'd be fun. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that I can identify in it is, um, is, well, a couple of interesting things. One is how much a energy a person uses to create a persona rather than allow people to see their authentic selves. But another thing I can actually see is um, how much you need to win versus win-win, win-lose, and lose-win. Mm -hmm. How much you need to be at an advantage. Gotcha. And across the board, 99% of everyone I've ever graphed has a extremely, what's called a high advantage. But their perception is that they're low advantage. Oh. So their perception is, I always, I'm willing to lose. I'm willing to let you have the better end. But it's only the inner story we tell ourselves. We actually always intend to win. Desperately want to win. And one of the great, I think, insights I had in my own life is that 
when I first went this through this like a decade ago, that's one of the places where I'm actually the reverse. Mm. And um, when the, uh, the consultant called me when I first went through from Germany, he said, you actually have what's called a low advantage. Uh, my perception is I'm a, that I, the number is like a 16 out of 99. So I perceive that I wouldn't really take advantage of people, but my actual number is an eight. And so he said, this is like so rare that we need to walk you through this because you'll let people take advantage of you all your life. And this goes back to what we talked about before. You're always paying the bill. Yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, I do remember Part that. of the conversation. Yeah. And, and I've thought about that. I've been letting occasionally people pick up the check from time to time. That's good. Mm -hmm. And when you're a low advantage person, the downside is you don't even realize you're, you might be unhealthy as a lose-win relationship person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the upside is you would never take advantage of anyone. Yeah. And what you have to like realize that is happening a lot of times is that we, we live in a cultural environment where we're raised to have an advantage. The reversal isn't the normative. So when I talk to someone who is like, a, let's say a 1695, and they go, wait a minute, am I really like this? And I go, here's the good news. That's what humans look like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not an aberration. This is the norm. Right. Something has to like glitch somewhere along the way for you not to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, but w when you become aware of that, you realize oh, I'm always going to perceive as if I'm losing, even though if I'm winning. And when you go back to like millennials in the conversation and you and you look at the seven frequencies, one of the challenges is that we actually don't even know our full intention when we're communicating. Hmm. And so let's say you're high advantage, but you have a low advantage perception. You're communicating as if you're a low advantage, but what a person's sensing in your frequency is the high advantage and they can't figure out why. Now imagine that on a platform when you go to pastors and leaders who have massive collapses. You're communicating service. You're communicating sacrifice. You're communicating humility. You're communicating all these virtues and you expect everyone to live them out. But somehow the subtext is, but not you. I'm the exception to the rule. I'm the exception to the rule because of how God chose me to be this person. To be the leader. Yeah. Wow. And, and once you see yourself as the exception to the rule of all the virtues of Jesus, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're We're in, in real trouble. trouble. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you often don't see it. And yeah. then everyone around you affirms your distorted view because of your talent. And it's, it, 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 it for me is a really critical issue. I, I know we keep leaving communication and talking about all these other issues, but mm. I think communication is in many ways, it's like the, the organism that touches everything well, and, we do in human life. And it's how most people access you. In these large organizations, large churches, large companies, how do people access you? They access you through Sunday morning, through your keynote addresses, mm -hmm. through your talks, through your public communication. So if you're in that situation, high command people, high need for love, healing in the congregation, and let's say you don't have a double life. Let's say... There's no 
hidden affair. There's nothing because honestly, that's probably the vast majority of cases. Yeah, the, it, I know we don't. The hear exception about that. is the mess. Yeah, the exception is the headline. The exception right. is the rule. But I imagine there are people here who would be like, okay, if I did your assessment, mm-hmm. I'm high command. We have a younger church, mm-hmm. high need for healing to listen in the healing mode. Is that just a trap destined to? Catch people? Is a bomb ready to go off? Or how do you navigate that? No, I think that Mosaic would have been probably so better served if I had been more of a commander. Oh, really? In fact, if you listen to both my kids, (laughs) 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 they would would absolutely agree. And they said, there have been many times, Dad, where you should have just told us. And instead of trying to just inspire us or grow us yeah. or come, you know, or challenge us because there are times people just need the clarity of command. Right. And, and it is true. But I would say that it's so rare that I've mm-hmm. used that particular frequency that in 38 years of marriage and 34 years that Aaron's been alive and 31 years that Mariah's been alive, they've almost never seen me use command in their life. And one time Mariah came to me and said, I just need you to tell me what to do. Don't be Yoda. Don't, don't, you know, I don't need you to be a sage. I just need you to tell me what to do. Yeah. And then I said, well, then I started asking questions. And I'm just not designed like that. When I think I'm commanding, I'm actually inquiring. Right. But I do think that you can command effectively. You can command well. What you need is a team of people who have other frequencies. You need a team with, uh, who has, someone has a healer frequency and someone has a motivator frequency. In fact, one of the things we've realized at Mosaic is we need more motivator frequencies who are being used on our platforms. And because, um, you know, Aaron is like a visionary seer commander and Mariah is like this very, very um, mavenish kind of challenger. And, uh, and I feel them as motivators. But when you listen to a real motivator, you realize, oh, there's a massive gap. Uh-huh. You know, my, my wife... <laughs> she'll get on the platform and I'll say, honey, you know, don't tell them what to do. And she'll get there. She goes, everyone raise your hand. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> she can't help it. You know, I can't have her do the offering because she'll go, you, you need to give right now. Like it, that's, and she can get away with it because she, everybody loves her. And, and, you know, and, and she goes to Africa and Ukraine and she's the most courageous human being. So everybody admires her. So she has a lot of like uh, texture for command. But we don't have a lot of motivators who just inspire people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of that is probably, according to um, the survey of my family, it hasn't been the highest value for me. Mm. I'm so self-motivated that I don't really need that frequency in my life very much. So if you're a commander yeah. and you're leading a church, and I think mm-hmm. you know the listening mode being a need for healing— Maybe the answer is self-awareness and a more diverse platform as far as communication frequencies go. Yeah. Uh, That's a good idea. I think that when you're a commander, yeah. you need to understand the cluster of frequencies that are available to you mm. and then realize that commander is, um, it's a spice. It's not the meal. Uh. And if you overuse it, people will stop listening to you. Mm. I listened to someone recently, and I don't want to say who it is. Uh, I love this person. But their whole talk, they were just yelling at us for 40 minutes. It's a lot of yelling. And it was in the business world. It wasn't in the Christian oh. world. I'd expect a, like a preacher like, to yell at me for 40 minutes, you know. But it was, a, it was a business guy just yelling at us, telling us everything that we need to do right and everything we do wrong and, and how to, you know, 
change and how to make the difference. And I, 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 it was like putting my head into a fire hydrant. I'm going, I, I need the water, but I can't drink this. Uh-huh. And, and so I feel like there's a huge need for self-awareness there. But I also feel that my experience is people who have a commander frequency usually have a high level of intelligence. It, it's just that they haven't actualized their emotional intelligence right. at the level that they need to. And, and, and I think this is an important note. Um, you know, it's a Carol Dweck who wrote Mindset. Uh, phenomenal book, right? Incredible. And Seven Frequencies is completely built on a growth mindset. It's not built on a fixed mindset. When you look at personality assessments or the Enneagram, you know, you're a nine or you're a five or you're a four, and that's who you are. You, you know, if you look at the Myers-Briggs, you're an ENFJ mm -hmm. and or an ISTP, and that's who you are. And um, this is a growth mindset. You have a core frequency, but the aspirational goal is to be able to actualize all seven frequencies as an as a elite communicator. And so you may have a seventh frequency, but you should be able to pull that frequency up whenever you need it. Mm. And, and, and I think one of the psychological places to be is I remember when Mariah was around 14 years old, she was a musician. We were driving home one day and she said, you know, daddy, I think I do the same thing you do. I said, well, what's that? She said, you said that um, if your message is ever going to connect to someone, it has to connect to you first. I said, yeah, I said that. And she goes, I know that if a song is going to connect to anyone, it has to connect to me first. Hmm. And I looked at her and I said, how can you understand this at 14 when I can't get all the pastors to get this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, see, frequencies are not about trying to get people to feel something. It's about getting in touch with your own inner world and feelings. And then when you actualize that, the room connects to it. That, okay, so, because I wanted to ask this question now, because we had mm -hmm. talked about it earlier, but authenticity. Yeah. So, people can discover their natural communication style. Maybe they see themselves already. But I think you're right. There's a lot of imitation. There's a lot of mm -hmm. plagiarism. Now we have chat GPT, which can write a message for you pretty crappily. Mm -hmm. But wait till four, five, six. We're in three right now. Yeah. You know, which I think is a whole story for a whole other day. But... I'm just wondering if you see people who think, oh, I have to be a healer or I have to be a um, professor or I mm -hmm. have to be a uh, motivator, mm -hmm. right? But they're not really that. It's not going to go well. Yeah, like what happens? that? Because mm -hmm. I, I get a lot of leaders saying, what do I need to do to get a platform? I get that question a lot, as I'm sure you do. And I'm not sure there's anything you need to do to get a platform, but part of my advice is don't be somebody you're not. Yeah. Because the good news, and that's one thing I really admire about you, is, you know, I followed you for many, many years, have known you for a number. Mm -hmm. You're pretty consistent, you know? <laughs> the message the message hasn't varied a whole lot, mm -hmm. and you've taken some hits for it. Mm -hmm. But the good news is you get up to you get up every morning, you get to be Irwin, mm -hmm. right? The way God designed you. I get up at this stage of my life, well, mm -hmm. and for many years, I get to be me. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm not pretending to be somebody. These are conversations I'm genuinely interested in, yeah. love asking questions, the writing I get to do, the speaking I get to do, it kind of flows from the inside out. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's everybody's experience. Yeah. And there were definitely times in my leadership where I felt like, oh, I've got to be more like Rick Warren or Andy Stanley or Christine Kane or whatever. And then I'm like, 
you know, I was on, I was on, do you know John Acuff? Uh, oh, yeah, I just yeah, yeah, I love John. Yeah. And I've done a lot of speaking with him. Yeah. And I always felt the pressure 10 years ago to be like, hey, you got to be more funny. And then I'm like, no, I'm not funny. I'm not funny like John. <laughs> That's his thing. And my mm -hmm. thing is I'll come up with the bullet points, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Uh, what do you do when you're not, if somebody's listening to this, realizing, I don't think I'm in my authentic voice. Can you play out what the the pitfall is of that? Like what happens to you long-term if you stay out of your lane, out of your frequency? And then what to do to become more in touch with your frequency? Yeah, it's, it, there's, there's a, a lot there because when you get paid to communicate, mm -hmm. it, it changes the dynamic for you. Yeah. And, and then you're being paid by this, let's say by church, and you're being paid in the sense in their mind to communicate the way they want you to communicate and say what they want you to say. Back to the nineties, right? Where yeah. you were, right? You know, and one of the things you have to begin to ask yourself is, um, you know, are, are you like a boat just bringing goods from one side, more port to another, <laughs> you know, you, so it's not really about you. It's just, this is a truth that say in the book of Romans and I'm translating it to the people here but I'm just the the boat. I'm there's I'm not affecting the goods, right? And or am I supposed to supposed to have my own unique voice? Is it is it essential to me to be uniquely me to have my own voice that I have my own perspective? And ironically, um, people may fire you for that, mm -hmm. and just just realize that that most churches don't hire you to be you. <laughs> and they hire you to be who they want you to be. So true. And and so it has less to do with communication. It has to do with sociological dynamics, you know, and of culture. I just, I've always just chosen to be unemployed and unique <laughs> rather than employed and the same. Yeah. I think <laughs> it creates a cognitive dissonance that gets mm -hmm. really hard to live in. It does. If you're, you know, wearing Saul's armor, if you're trying to fit into skin every week that that isn't yours or adopt a voice that isn't yours, I don't know. I, I would just think that would have to be exhausting. I, I think personally, you don't want to live your life being someone you're not. And you don't want to live your life giving messages that don't change you. Wow. Yeah. And so for me, a minimal criteria for any message I give is that the message has to change me, has to impact me, has to shape me. And, and I think a part of like becoming a, a, a more authentic voice is getting in touch with who you really are. And I, I'm pretty open about, you know, my life, my world, yeah. my inner world, you know. Um, sometimes I, I know it frustrates Cam going, I wish you wouldn't say that you're that, or wish you wouldn't say this, or, but, um, you know, I've struggled. I've struggled, you know, with OCD throughout all my life. You know, I've struggled, you know, I, I, you know, I have neurological challenges I've had all my life, you know, and, um, and I feel like it makes me more human. It helps me relate to people. And, and, and the really wonderful thing about being more human is that you have a better platform for then aspiring toward greatness. Because when you aspire toward greatness and no one sees any of your flaws and, and you act like you're perfect, people will almost despise the greatness yeah. in you. Yeah. They're, 
they're almost excited to to see you get knocked down yeah. a peg or two. But yeah. if, but if people can relate to you and they feel like you know there's a part of you that's the common person and you connect to everyone and you're human and down to earth. More often than not, they're going to celebrate your success. They're going to celebrate the things about you that make you unique and great. And um, I remember years and years ago, um, my brother Alex, he said to me on a phone, as we're talking about something, and I was probably frustrated, you know, (laughs) and he said, Erwin, God has not called you to be original. He's called you to be effective. And I didn't realize he was quoting Rick Warren. <laughs> so he wasn't being original. He was actually just <laughs> being effective. Actually, that's clever. <laughs> and, uh, and I was depressed the whole week, wondering if that was true. And I remember calling him back a week later and I said, hey, Alex, I've thought about what you said. Maybe God hasn't called you to be original, but God has definitely called me to be original. But I actually think God has called us all to be original. I don't think the measure is effectiveness. And I I think it's being authentic and honest and true to who you are and then allowing the effectiveness to come out of that. Like I'm smart enough to have known how to be famous in the Christian world. I just chose not to be. I, I, I could have made different choices. I could have started my church in a different part of the country, in a different sure. suburb, in a different spot. Like I, I can never say, oh, I just didn't know. I knew. I just chose not to. I came here because I felt these people don't really have the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. I go after people who are outliers because I feel like they don't really have someone who they can connect to at a deep level. And you have to make choices and decide, I'll take that success. I'll take the success where I wake up in the morning going, yeah, I've, I've lived my unique life. You know, I, it, maybe I, I left success on the table at a level that other people think I should have been successful. You know, I, I could have written books that sold millions. I, I, I'm just bright enough to be able to do that. You know, but I wrote books that mattered to me. And there's a difference, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, you have to decide, you know, who you do what you do for. And I think that's what I would say to pastors is, don't spend another day of your life being what other people want you to be, you know? And and some of that, I don't know that you had this or not, but for me, I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years sort of embracing who I really am. And there's a little bit of disappointment that I've always had to get over in my 40s and 50s. It's like, yeah, you're not as funny. No, you're not as smart. No, you're not as quippy. You're not as clever. Um, but there's also a beauty and a peace and like going, oh, okay, this is who I am, right? Like this is this is how I communicate. But those frequencies are when, to your credit, I mean, I'm speaking here in LA tomorrow and it's funny, I already know what I'm going to say, but thinking through the frequencies, it's helped me rethink the talk already and maybe land in a slightly more aware tone and go for the connection rather than the quote, performance, because the pressure to perform never really goes away in this sphere, does it? So let me give you a little exercise. Yeah, sure. Um, We understand when a person is monotone Mm -hmm. and we always say, change your cadence or change your intonation or change your rate of speech. And those are three ways, right? That you can try to not be monotone, but you need to change your frequency. Uh, when I went to Lewis Howe's event, the Summit of Greatness, and spoke there, before I got on stage, I told myself, 
I, I want to use, I want to really step into this healer frequency about three quarters of the way through. But because it's not my primary frequency, I can get so much momentum that I forgot. Right. So I told myself, I'm going to do something I've never done before. And so I began the entire talk with just being so present and stepping with a healer frequency. And then I shifted to my maven frequency. And, and it, it, the whole message was transformed for me. And then I did a book signing afterwards and people just kept coming and they started weeping, going, I don't know why, but I started feeling like I was being healed. So how did you do that? What did you and do to start in your healer frequency? I, uh, I spent a few minutes, it didn't take long, to remember a moment in my life where God healed me, where I was going through pain, where I was, you know, struggling, where I was felt alone or overwhelmed. And I just uh, connected deeply at that level. And I and then I, I stepped and I, so I, I let myself not remember it, but to live in it. Because uh, you want it to come from the essence of who you are, you know, and it changed the whole way I told the opening story. It changed everything. And, and it, it, and it was transformative. So now I, a lot of times I'll think in terms of, I almost think of the frequencies as if you're flying at different levels mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. talk, you know, and there's times where I have to pull back and go, I need to be a professor right now. There's truth I need to transmit from here to there. And it's, I, it's not even about motivating them or challenging them or inspire them to great vision. There's just a truth that if I can just transmit this truth, it'll change their life. So there's times I have to pull back and go, I need to, it's almost like I need to slow my, my speedboat and make sure that this professor frequency translates the truth so they don't miss it. So every frequency has, like a, a, has a power that it can bring into your messaging. Wow. We've talked a lot about communication. Anything we haven't hit on that you want to share? Oh, wow. I mean, this, is, this conversation has gone so much further and wider yeah, than I expected great. it to go. Uh, you know, I just, oh, I, there was this interesting Princeton study that talked about the role of technology and artificial intelligence in the future and how every job, every, every skill set that humans provide will eventually be replaced. Mm. And, but not the transformative power of human communication. I wondered about that. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what kind of AI they can create to write copy for you, it will not replace the need for one human being to speak into another human being's life. I'm, I always wondered about that, you know, because who knows where AI is going. But mm -hmm. if, you know, everything I'm reading in the next few years is mm -hmm. generated by AI or informed by AI, I imagine it's only a matter of time until I have AI that re <laughs> reads what the other AI wrote. So we're not even really communicating anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet the soul longs to connect with another soul, the yeah. human longs to connect with another human. Like, I don't know whether generated versions of this conversation <laughs> would be the same as a real conversation. It's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, the future belongs to the communicators. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and 30 years ago, I came here because I believed the future belonged to the creatives. Ow. And I think the future belongs to the communicators. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's what we don't realize is the deficit that the human experience has on this planet of having the experience of someone speaking into your soul. Because, you know, you're a person of faith, you go to church, you were a pastor, you have your podcast, you're having all these conversations. 
you live in the world of human communication. Most people don't. And the reason they're getting trapped into, you know, the, the internet and they're getting trapped into gaming is because of this massive deficit of human connection. The people who learn how to speak into people's lives in a way that brings healing and hope, that brings courage and vision, those people are going to be disproportionately leveraged for success in the world. I see this already in the business world. Everybody I know that already has made $100 million is trying to figure out how to become a communicator. They realize, oh, I've made wealth, but what I need to know is I need to learn how to communicate so I can actually bring change. And this is why, I, one, I just, I think we underestimate the beauty of the church. The greatest musicians in the world came out of the church because every art. church sang. Like, you know, it's like the greatest art. It's like it, the church is supposed to be the epicenter of the greatest communicators in the world. But we're entertaining ourselves to death. It's not television and film and, you know, gaming that's actually entertaining ourselves to death. That's not the one I'm worried about. It's the one where on Sunday we demand pastors to communicate in a way that only speaks to us and is irrelevant to the world. That's the most dangerous kind of entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the rump, like those who remain. We're going to stay in our little bunker while the world, world burns. You know, it's really made me think about the value of communication as well, because you're right. I mean, back to that snippet we had earlier, where we talked about, you know, around 2005, our kids didn't need us as much as they used to because the internet went broadband, YouTube was invented, and, you know, all of a sudden you could Google your answers to almost anything. But what you can't really Google satisfactorily is connection, and you can't Google meaning. And I look even at my own newsfeed services and the emails I subscribe to, and sometimes there's so much information, I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to digest this. There's just too much. And what I need is someone to come along and speak truth, somebody to speak meaning, someone to make sense of it all. And I don't think that's going away anytime I can see. No. Yeah. I love it. The future belongs to communicators. So tell us where they can access your course, because I imagine some would, you're looking like, what's the URL? I where do I find where you can that? access my course. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, you can go to theartofcommunication.com. There you go, theartofcommunication.com. And it, do you have an assessment or anything like that where people could discover it, or is that part of the course? Uh, we have been working on an assessment. We've already finished our first phase, but we're working on a second, third iteration to get it really refined. So there will be an assessment that will come out. So stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. So it will be available. If you go to uh, the Articom, um, .org, then .org. it'll be there eventually. Artofcommunication.org. This is great. Erwin, as always, it's fascinating. Thanks so much for hosting this conversation. That's and great. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Man, that was a fascinating conversation with Erwin, wasn't it? So uh, we got a lot more in the show notes for you. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 560, where we have transcripts, we've got highlights, we've got links to everything we talked about. And I'm going to tell you what's coming up next episode. But first, uh, I want to thank our partners. Make sure you check out what Belay has to offer. You can get their free church leadership toolkit. So text my name, Carrie, to 55123. You can pick that up absolutely free. That's Carrie to 55123. And if you want the free resources and a free generosity call, discovery call with Generis, 
Go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com backslash carry, where you can get that for free. Well, next episode, we've got Andy Wood. Andy is the new lead pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. And actually, we added Stacy Wood to this conversation. Andy and I filmed this in Orange County. And then, uh, well, something happened. You'll hear about it next week. We added Stacy uh, to this uh, conversation as well. And here's an excerpt of what you can expect. It, it made me choke up when Rick called me his pastor. I know. But like, so he had done that privately. Like we, we were on a Zoom and he choked up. He's like, this is the first time I've had a pastor <laughs> since I've been 25 years old. And then uh, I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm Rick Warren's pastor. <laughs> I know, I know. So I, yeah. I that, wish people could see your eyes. I mean, you're tearing up right now. Yeah, I'm just up the, the about weight it. of yeah. that. And yeah. even the, the the privilege, like, oh my, how grateful I feel. Like I get to be a shepherd to this hero of the faith. So um, yeah, that was that was a pretty cool moment. So that's Andy and Stacy Wood next time. Also coming up, we have Albert Tate, David Platt, Will Gadara, Caitlin Beatty. Who else have we got? Chris Hodges, Henry Cloud, Sherelle Jackson, Kevin Kelly, Paula Ferris, and a whole lot more. That's all coming up on the podcast. And hey, March is almost over. And I got to ask you, how has your team been doing with your 2023 goals? Well, if you're struggling with them and going, yeah, I don't even want to think about it. I'll wait till next New Year's. I'd love to help you. I've got a goal setting resource, uh, an accountability and culture guide for you and your team, and it's free. You can go to leadershipaccelerator.church to get it today. Well, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I really hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.